I am excited because this morning starts the study uh, that's going to last us probably the remainder of the year, and that's the study of the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, you know, 1 Samuel is one of these iconic books. If, if you've been a Christian for a year or if you went to Sunday school as a kid, you've heard something from the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, it's one of those books that is so, like all of Scripture, so relevant to our culture, particularly now. I mean, uh, you know, you can't open a news app or read a newspaper or watch TV and, and, and not be exposed to this, the, the GOP, almost circus-like environment to find the new nomination for the Republican Party. And the, the driving question behind a lot of it is this topic of leadership, Who's going to be the best leader for that particular political party? And so, you know, you have all these interesting dynamics that go on between them, trying to show the different types, and boy, aren't there a spectrum of leadership types out there. Uh, this topic is huge, and you know, these, these political campaigns spend thousands and thousands of dollars on consultants trying to groom their candidates for the nation's top leadership spot. It's not just politics that leadership is this is huge industry, but uh, education is another area where leadership development is huge, multi-million dollar business. Corporate America does the same thing. Millions of dollars poured into let, getting people learn, learn to be better leaders. You know, the church is not much different. When I was in Bible college in the 90s, I remember taking numerous leadership courses, and the books we had was, you know, The Seven Laws of Leadership. Some of these books might be familiar to you. Seven Laws of Leadership, uh, leading, other, leading Those Around You, Developing the Leader Within You, Churchill on Leadership, Lincoln on Leadership, Spurgeon on Leadership, um, Leading Leaders, Leading Others, Leading Other Leaders. I mean, it goes on and on and on. You can't shake a bookshelf or a Kindle without a book on leadership popping out. Out. It is everywhere because I think leadership affects every single one of us, doesn't it? Now, all of us are in some kind of leadership role and or in some kind of role where we're being led. You know, the Greek philosopher Aristotle said, when people gather, leadership matters. It's true, isn't it? Now, if you look at just the vast number of books produced on leadership, Americans think leadership matters not just in politics or education or corporate America, but everywhere, whether you're leading a nation of 400 million or a family of four or just yourself, leadership is key, and it's everywhere we look. It's the mother to the child, the husband to the family, the employer to the employee, the elder to the congregation, and depending upon your role or situation, those can be reversed, but all of us simultaneously exercise leadership, and all of us simultaneously are being led. And that's one of the things I love about the book of 1 Samuel. You see, 1 Samuel is all about leadership, good leadership, bad leadership, human leadership, divine leadership, everything in between. A leadership that flourishes people, a leadership that fails people. It's something that's important to all of us because how you view leadership will depend not only how you lead others, but how you lead yourself. So stop and think, what do you think about the concept of leadership? What are the things that go into the way you lead those around you or your own life? Is it important? Is it a topic worth thinking about? Well, not only does our culture think it is, but Scripture definitely thinks it is. And 1 Samuel is all about a leadership. 
And, and God's people have flourished from good leadership. God's people have floundered under bad leadership. Leadership that is godly and faithful blesses God's people. Likewise, leadership that is ungodly and unfaithful uh, is a curse to God's people. In fact, it's been both. And in the book of 1 Samuel, we see all of that displayed in those short 31 chapters. And so we're going to look at 1 Samuel. We're going to today take a kind of 10,000-foot view looking at this one book. And normally when I come up here, I've got maybe five pages of notes to get through. Uh, This morning, I've got about eight or nine. So just to give you a little bit of perspective, but but give me a break. Trying to cover 31 chapters in a short amount of time. So this is going to be a flyover over the themes of 1 Samuel. And what you're going to see that comes out is that 1 Samuel is a book on leadership, and while we might be tempted to find leadership principles and apply it to our lives, really what the author and authors of 1 Samuel are trying to do is to get us to see that all the leadership that's displayed through this book all serves to point to one divine leadership or leader. And every situation and scenario and chapter is either serving to compare or contrast to that supreme leader we all need to be looking to. And that's not just true of the situations we read in 1 Samuel or politics or in education or corporate America. It's true in our own lives. How am I exercising my leadership? How am I allowing myself to be led that either compares or contrasts to the one that all of Scripture points to, and that's Jesus Christ. Now, His name doesn't appear in 1 Samuel. But you can hardly turn a page without hearing echoes of his name being mentioned throughout it. So that's where we're going to go. That's where we're going the rest of the year, at least. Uh, And this morning, like I said, I just want to cover what is the theme of 1 Samuel. And it's about faith in faithless time shown most clearly in the lives of the leaders of this nation. With that, let's pray and, and jump in and see what God has for us. Father, we thank you that we could gather this morning and read Your Word and to learn from You. Leadership matters, and You lead us so well. And there are many things we can learn from the way You lead, and there are many things we can learn from the way others have led, both good and bad. Would You give us eyes to see and ears to hear how You want us to lead not only our families, our lives, our churches, our businesses, our schools, our nation, but lead to your glory and with your purpose. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, flip open to the book of 1 Samuel. It's the the ninth book in the Old Testament, so it's more to the front of the Bible. And as you're turning open to it, let me just give you a little bit of a background. Jewish tradition holds that the prophets Samuel, uh, also Nathan and Gad, were the authors that wrote the book that we call 1 Samuel. Now, depending upon what your your, uh, theological tradition or background is, you might have some kind of background in Catholicism or Protestantism or maybe even Orthodox, the way the book shows up in those various Bibles can be different. Sometimes 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings are all clumped together as one book. Sometimes they're divided. Sometimes it's a modified combination of those two. 1 Samuel falls into the larger category of biblical books called the former prophets that actually also go back and include uh, the point of when Joshua and led the nation of Israel into Canaan all the way through to when Israel is taken into exile under King Zedekiah. So it, it covers about 790, 800 years of time, all that kind of historical period. 
Now, 1 Samuel follows three men in particular, Samuel the prophet, Saul the king, and David the man. Through all the stories and interactions and narratives, those are the three that constantly come up to the surface. Every chapter in the book serves to highlight, to point to one of these three men or the situations or context that brought about their leadership or their reign. And so we're going to follow, even in, in the way we're going to study this book together, we're going to follow the lives of these three men. If you were here for our reading service last week, we read from chapters 1 through 7 because chapters 1 through 7 is all about Samuel, the prophet. Chapters 8 through 14, Saul, the king, and then chapters 15 to the rest of the book, it's about David, the man. And so that's how we're going to study it together. So this morning, let's take a look at briefly Samuel, the po- prophet from God's grace. Now, Samuel is a picture of a leader who is a man of God's Word. He is, according to Scripture, the last of the judges that we just came from at the the left of the book of Samuel. You see Ruth and before that, judges. He's the last of one of Israel's judges, and the book of Acts calls him the first of the prophets. Now, we were introduced uh, to Samuel by way of his mother Hannah in chapter 1. You recall that Hannah was a childless woman who was, uh, but had simple but hugely profound faith, crying out for the Lord that she would, that the Lord would give to her a child and end her barrenness. And she promised that if the Lord had given to her child, she would dedicate this young child back to the Lord. And so God, being a God who hears, answers her prayer before the chapter ends, and they appropriately name Samuel. Samuel, because it means God hears. And then we get into chapter 2, we see early on the striking contrast between the wicked sons of the high priest Eli and the other young priests of the tabernacle. And so it only becomes fitting that Samuel at a young age receives this amazing call in chapter 3. Let me just read those 10 verses because they're so pivotal to the story. Now, the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. So, you're going to see, and I want your, you have eyes and ears to see this all throughout the book. In many books of the Old Testament, the authors are weaving in commentary to give you a picture of what's going on. If we were reading the book of Judges, you would see the phrase repeated numerous times, and every man did what was right in his own eyes to show the chaotic anarchy of the people of the time. And so here we have the first of many of these comments. The author includes, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. And at that time, verse 2, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was laying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was there lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So Samuel went and lay down again. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son. Lie down again. And Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the young man. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, 
for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place, and the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Chapter 3 and verse 10 is illustrative of Samuel's life. Samuel was attentive to God's voice. He was eager to hear the words of the Lord. All the Lord had to do was say, Samuel, and Samuel came running. Don't you wish your own children would come on just one call of the name? But Samuel was attentive, more than attentive. He was eager to obey, more than eager to obey. He was eager to present himself. And in a time when the priests were corrupt and the religious system was collapsing, here you have a young man, not yet past 10 years of age, thirsting to be obedient to God's Word. And as a result, his own words were regarded as powerful and respected throughout the land. Look at chapter 3 at verse 19, and as Samuel grew the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. See, Samuel knew the Lord because Samuel knew the word of the Lord. And I love how chapter 3 ends and chapter 4 picks up. I can't think of a better example of a righteous leader than Samuel, quick to hear the word of the Lord, willing to obey, and knowing the word of the Lord led to knowing the Lord himself and teaching it. Look at how chapter 3 ends. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord in chapter 4, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. That's not coincidental. As God's word came to Samuel and Samuel was eager to hear it, Samuel's word went out and others were eager to hear it as well. And young Samuel couldn't have come at a better time than these dark days in Israel's history. In chapters 3, 4, and 5, we witness the total collapse of the religious life of Israel as they begin to treat God's ark as little more than a little lucky rabbit's foot or a talisman that they then bring into battle thinking by just having this, this object would ensure their victory and God's blessing. But God is never settled for or happy with formality and the trappings of religion and teaches them a severe lesson as in the same day the high priest Eli and his two sons who were with the ark in battle all three are slain the same day, and the ark of God, who they thought would give them victory, was captured and taken into enemy's hands. Chapter 6 shows the ark coming back to Israel after the Philistines suffered greatly for their blasphemy, and almost comically we see in chapter 5 how they put the ark of God in the temple of their gods, Dagon, and Dagon keeps collapsing over, and every morning the priests have to keep propping up their god that keeps falling down before the ark. But in chapter 6, they recognize that this is the hand of the Lord, and they want nothing to do with it, and they send the ark back. And gets back to Israel, the men of Beth Shemesh celebrate that God's presence is back, but they still miss the point. They treat God's holiness lightly, and 70 of the men are smoted just like that. And then in verse 20 of chapter 6, the men of Beth Shemesh say this reoccurring frame, or not a reoccurring frame, but a theme, they say this, 
After watching 70 of their friends slain by God, they say, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? That is a theme that weaves itself throughout the book of 1 Samuel, that God is holy, and we must esteem Him as holy. In chapter 2, God says, I will be deemed holy by, I, will sh- I will show respect. Let me, say, let me say this. I will honor, that's it. I will honor those who treat me with honor, and I will despise those who treat me with light esteem. And then in chapter 6, the men they say themselves, who can stand before this holy God? This theme that God is more holy than we've ever perceived or imagined is all throughout 1 Samuel. And the leaders that understand that flourish or fail to the degree that they apply that in their lives. So, in chapter 7, Samuel leads the nation in this amazing movement of genuine repentance. Twenty years after the events of chapter 6, it's amazing how fast time flies in the Bible, from one verse to another, in chapter 6 to chapter 7, 20 years goes by, and the ark of God does not come back to Shiloh, where it started from, but stays away because everyone's afraid of it. And finally, in chapter 7, Samuel leads the nation in this great repentance and delivers, her, delivers the nation from their enemies. And in Joshua-like challenge, says this, and Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away from you the foreign gods and the ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only, and He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines." Chapter 7, this is amazing deliverance of the people of Israel from the hand of the Philistines, by the hand of God, through the prophet Samuel, and then ironically, in a display of human nature in chapter 8, the people ask for a king to rule over them so they can be like the nations they just conquered. They reject God's deliverance and God's prophet and ask Samuel to give them a king like all the nations around them have a king. They choose to reject God's rule. And here we see it in in chapter 8, verse 6 and 7. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And amazingly, and again, we see that Samuel obeyed. What made Samuel such a formidable leader is that he always obeyed the Lord in all that he was asked to do. That phrase in and of itself is so contrary to our common understanding of what a leader is. The leader is the one that gives the orders. But what made Samuel such a powerful leader is he always knew who who to obey, even if it seemed unintuitive and even if it seemed foolish. He would obey the Lord. Like in 1 Samuel 16, when the Lord tells Samuel to ignore all the handsome, strapping, and strong sons of Jesse and choose the smallest and youngest of his sons, so small and so young, Jesse didn't even bother to bring him in to present him to Samuel. Young boy named David. And even in that seemingly foolish choice of a king, Samuel obeyed. Samuel's life epitomizes what he said to Saul in 1 Samuel 22. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? 
Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and listen, and to listen than the fat of rams. Samuel saying, look, you may have your religious cultic system around here. You may do your sacrifices. You may burn the fat of rams that smells so delicious, but God's not impressed by any of those things. Better for you to obey him and to listen to him than to have all the externalities of the cultic system that we have that's supposed to bring us to God. And Samuel's life was a ministry and leadership of God's word. I mean, the, the hearing, the obeying, the speaking, the teaching of God's commands, Samuel's life was also a ministry of prayer and of engaging God on behalf of others. Some of Samuel's last words to the people of God were just as, are just as applicable to us now as they were back then. In Samuel chapter 12, verse 20 and 25, let me read them to you. I don't think I have them back there. Oh, I do. Okay. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid that you have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart, and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, because they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake His people, for His great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself." Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all of your heart. For consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Samuel's life, what a fruitful life, what a faithful leader. Friends, follow the example of Samuel. Follow the example of Samuel in the studying and the praying through and the obeying of God's Word. Samuel's life flourished and was blessed because he pursued the Word of the Lord. Now, let me just give a practical suggestion in doing this. Cancel your cable subscription. Right? I mean, we don't need to take that to a church vote, but if you want to know the Word of God more, cancel your cable subscription. Do you need 300 channels? Right? I'm not going to make that a rule here, but cancel your cable subscription. Get out of your life things that are trivial, things that don't matter, that distract you from the things that matter most. Besides, you have Netflix. You can always watch what you want to watch, right? <laughs> what about setting your alarm a little earlier every morning? to get up and read the Word of God. How about reading through the chapter that's going to be preached the coming Sunday here at Christ Community Church? How about putting on your smartphone a Bible, a daily Bible reading app? They don't have to be great ones. They just have to divide chapters for you and present it to you. Be a man or a woman who actually gets into the Word of God. You know, I got to say, as a pastor, I am so encouraged by our reading service and the response of this church from our reading service last week. You know, that was kind of a roll of the dice, not sure how people were going to take to that. You, you're actually just going to read seven chapters and that's it? Yet, every person I spoke to said that was a moving experience. And it showed the great respect we have God's Word as we sat corporately and just had the Word read to us. That's a ministry of Samuel right there. Samuel's life and his leadership was a ministry of the Word of God. 
We want to be a people of the Word of God. But Samuel's not the only leader that this we learn about in the book of 1 Samuel. And actually, it's the next leader that becomes more of a highlight throughout the book. His name is Saul. And Saul is a really a king in God's place. And not because God chose him to be the king, but he actually started to take the place of God in the lives of the people. And like Samuel, the life of Saul is recorded in 1 Samuel. He's picked to be the king that Israel so desperately wanted. And at first, things look pretty good about Saul. He is a, a, everything you'd imagine to be in a king. This king is head and shoulders above everyone else. Literally, he is head and shoulders above everyone else. Look at 1 Samuel 9, verse 2. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man, and there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. You imagine that Saul looked in every way the part of a king, more handsome than any of the men there, taller than all of them. And in chapters 9 and 10, Saul starts off well enough. He's a very modest and, and humble man, a real winner. But then with just a few chapters, things spiral out of control. You see, it, it's not just clear that Saul is impressive, and there's nothing wrong with being an impressive man. The problem was Saul was impressive to himself, and that was a huge issue. And it became painfully clear that how impressed he was by his own attributes. Starting in chapter 13, until the end of the book, things go from bad to worse. In chapter 13, Saul begins to act presumptuously by taking the role of the priest upon himself. In chapters 14, he speaks presumptuously by making foolish promises. And by chapter 15, it comes into all-out, flat-out disobedience. And from there on in, it's just a, a life of disobedience. Saul, you see, is, a, is an island unto himself. Saul did everything his way. Now, we need to stop and think that, uh, by the way, I'm pitching it and presenting it. We think, well, that, obviously that can't be the right way. But when you think about our culture, Saul is the kind of guy we want. Saul is a very self-made, self-assured, self-confident man. But that was exactly, that's exactly Saul's problem. He forgot that although he was the king of the nation, he was merely a steward. He was merely meant to manage God's assets on behalf of the true king that he merely represented. He didn't have the right to rule, even though he was the king. In God's economy, that's the way this works. All authorities, all kings, all presidents don't have the right to rule, to dictate, or command as they see fit. They need to exercise that rulership to do the things that God sees fit. Now, I wonder how much of Saul you see in yourself. Do you even realize that everything you have are resources, times, talents, things given to you to steward as God sees fit? Or have you forgotten or have you been living in our culture so long that you actually believe that it's all your time, it's all your resources, all your finances, it's all your things, and have forgotten that God, out of His mercy and grace, has merely dispensed them to you, and there will be an accounting for how you use those things. Stop and think about it. You and I don't even have control over the beating of our heart and the breathing of our lungs. <laughs> we think we're in control 
I never go to bed thinking, man, I sure hope I think about breathing tonight. When it comes to the thing that just keeps us alive, we don't even have control over that basic function. It is something that God in his mercy says, I know you think you control everything, but I'm gonna keep your heart beating and I'm gonna keep your lungs breathing throughout the night. And I know your chances are you're not gonna wake up being grateful. You're just gonna think that's the way it is. When was the last time you got up and said, Lord, I'm alive. The lungs kept working. Now, I have sleep apnea, so I appreciate that even more because sometimes my lungs stop working. And then Lori gives me the shove, you know, and I wake up. The point is this. We so often forget that all of us, regardless of the level of leadership we've been given, is merely a stewardship, and Saul forgot that to tragic consequence. The remainder of Saul's life shows the inevitable decline of a life that was motivated by the self. You look at it, it's full of disobedience to God's commands in chapter 15, verse seven through nine. Blame shifting in chapter 15 and 21. Fear, chapter 15, 24. Envy, all of chapter 18. And it climaxes with Saul murdering the priests of God in chapter 22. And then in chapter 28, Saul even consults a necromancer, someone who speaks to the dead out of desperation. Now, if there's a second reason that Saul failed as a leader, it's because he didn't know who really to fear. See, his first mistake was forgetting that even though he was king, he was merely a steward. His second forget was fearing, his second mistake was fearing man rather than God. Look at chapter 15, verse 24 and 25. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, this is Samuel speaking to Saul, he has also rejected you from being king. And Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. Here it is. Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Then Saul said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Here, Saul is being judged by God, and Saul admits why he failed. But what's striking is he seems more concerned not to look bad in front of the nation of Israel. He says, just do me this favor. Honor me before everyone else. I know I've blown it, but just make me look good in front of them, and then we'll go to worship together. See, Saul's concern was that he would look good in front of the eyes of the people who he just admitted to fearing and admitted that that was wrong. And Saul's leadership, like his relationship to God, was full of hypocrisy in the end. You know, one of the antidotes to hypocrisy in a Christian's life is involvement in a local congregation. One of the antidotes to hypocrisy in your life is to surround your life, make a congregation of Christians central to your Christian growth. Not coming in showing you are strong, but actually sharing your weaknesses with others. Not everybody, but share your weaknesses with few people around you, especially those you have felt the urge to impress. Share your weaknesses, share your struggles, even some of the embarrassing ones. Share it with those that you feel tempted to want to look good in front of. Share it with those you're tempted to, you're tempted to impress. Put to death, wow, 
Put to death your reputation and your love of what others think of you. Seek ministry that's humble and hidden. Be aware of people that you want to impress with your life. The sheer, one of the antidotes to hypocrisy is having other Christians in your life who love you enough to know when you're not being real, who love you enough to tell you that. Now, there's one final leader in the book of 1 Samuel that we will look at over the next several months, and this is the man, David. If Saul was an independent man who feared other men, then David is a dependent man who feared God. David is everything that Saul isn't. He's small, he's unimpressive, but he's faithful, and he's concerned with the things of God. And the account of David's confrontation with Goliath in 1 Samuel 17 typifies David's whole life and ministry. Look at it in 1 Samuel 17, verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, you come with me with a sword and with a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled this day. And this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, and that all the earth may know that there is one God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hand. You see, as David's faith in God's power is clearly evident here in 1 Samuel 17, David's faith in God's plan is seen in chapters 24 and 26, when twice, two times, he had the opportunity to kill Saul and take over the kingdom, but he refused to act presumptuously. You read 1 Samuel over and over. Read it this week. It'll take you probably about a, maybe an hour if you're really think, reading through it carefully, and you will walk away realizing that David is a man consumed with God. David was consumed with God's plan, God's activities, God's purposes, God's honor, God's glory. David was consumed about God. David had the right perspective about this life. This is what the Bible calls faith. David saw that all of creation is about God and not himself. And he lived his life according to that. Unlike his predecessor Saul, David feared God more than man. Listen to his words in 1 Samuel 24. When he has the opportunity to kill Saul, to become the rightful king that he was anointed to be, he passes it up and says this, and he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, small l, Lord meaning Saul, capital L meaning the Lord, the Lord's anointed. So let me read that again. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord Saul, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. Even though Saul acted presumptuously and disobediently, even though David had been anointed to be the new king, David refused to take things into his own control. Just a few verses later, David says, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. You know, as we survey 
the lives of these leaders in the coming months, and we're going to see their strengths and weaknesses. None of them, no matter how much we are tempted to put them on a pedestal, escape the effects of depravity. Samuel, a powerful prophet, an obedient uh, servant of the Lord, did live with the painful truth that his own sons didn't follow after his own, in his own footsteps. Chapter 8, verse 3 says that his own sons followed after perversion and took bribes. David, a man after God's own heart, a faithful kin, king, in the end succumbed to temptation and betrayed the God he so faithfully served. The reality is all of us struggle with sin. Every single one of us, just like the biblical characters that were recorded for us. And and that's one of the reasons I love the Bible. The Bible never whitewashes the sins of humanity. Oftentimes, the Bible will highlight them to display God's glory and grace. But one thing we learn watching, no matter how godly they were and they failed, that we actually need more than the kings and the priests and the prophets that we read about in 1 Samuel. We need a king that can do more than guide us. We need a king that can actually empower us. We need a a king that can not only destroy the, the physical giants of the land, we need a king that can defeat the rebellion in our own darkened hearts. And as we see the priests of 1 Samuel, we recognize we need a priest that is pure, that's not corrupt, a priest that will faithfully represent us to God. And we need a prophet that will always speak God's words to us when we want to hear and obey, but more importantly, when we don't. You see, in all their victories and all their failures, every event in 1 Samuel is pointing us to our need of a true prophet, priest, and king. And his name is brought to us in the New Testament as being Jesus Christ, who was the true prophet, who speaks God's word, who is the true priest, who represents us to God and is the true king. It's his leadership that we want to ground our lives in. It's his words we want to obey. It's his commands we want to follow after. If we live our lives under His leadership, we learn to love His words, learn to obey His commands, and see Him as our faithful servant King, not only will your life flourish, but the lives of those who follow your lead. May that be true of us as a church, in whatever leadership God gives to us, as well as us as individuals, whatever leadership God gives to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the words of 1 Samuel and this amazing book that displays the depth of the depravity of the human heart and the height of the splendor of your grace and mercy. Father, I pray that as we study together, as we read together, as we meditate together, that we would be transformed to be like the kinds of men and women we see with Hannah's great faith, Samuel's passion for your word, and David's passion for you and your character and plans. We want to be transformed by that, Lord, but we know that will not come from human prophets and priests and kings. It can only come from the one that truly is what we need, and that is Jesus Christ. So, Lord, would you help us to see him clearer and clearer as we study 1 Samuel together. In his name we pray, amen.